Welcome to Regal's RyeCast, where we share all things LiDAR. My name is Abby Clark, Marketing Manager for Regal USA. This series features interviews with industry experts from around the world. Innovative LiDAR applications, best practices, workflow advice, and even exciting news about hardware and software. In today's RyeCast, we are heading out for another edition of Road Trips with Josh and the VMX. Joshua France, Regal USA's mobile division manager, is joined by two guests, Kevin Miller and Scott Campbell with Solved, a geospatial technology company providing software applications for a variety of technology add-ons. Learn more about AI, deep learning, cloud computing, machine learning, and how Regal LiDAR is being implemented. Over to you, Josh. We are ready to hit the road. Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting road trip with Josh and the VMX, the RyeCast podcast series. Today, we're taking a road trip of a bit different type of sort. We're getting on the information superhighway into the cloud, as it were. So to quote Doc Brown from Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need roads. So today, I'm joined by two guests, Kevin Miller and Scott Campbell. They both work with Solved which is a geospatial technology company, and they uh, provide great software applications for a variety of technology add-ons. I think it was once described to me as the Swiss Army knife of software tools. And they've added even more tools to that now. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Scott and Kevin to the RyeCast. Let's get started here. So why don't you guys tell me a little bit about yourselves and uh, about Solved. Yeah, great. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here. A little bit about uh, Salt. As you say, we're a software company. We sort of do a Swiss Army knife sort of application stuff. My background, I'm an electrical engineer, so my background is in computer technology, hardware, and software. Kevin? I'm Kevin Miller. I'm the CTO here at Salt, and I'm, I, I come from a computer science background and I'm mostly in charge of our software development and R&D teams here at Salt. If I'm not mistaken, you guys got started around 2017 or so. Is that sound about right? Yeah, we were with uh, an engineering uh, survey company prior to that, and uh, we got spun out in 2017, yeah. That company happened to be uh, great VMX users up in the uh, northern country of Canada. Yeah, that's actually what uh, drove me. There was a few little things, tweaks that they needed to process some of their data. That's where the whole thing got started. Yeah. It's been a a few years since you got started there. So how would you best describe the features of your software and what what are the big advantages? Yeah, well, I I hate to go back and say that Swiss Army knife thing again, but but it is true. We sort of fill in the applications, uh, application gaps that some people have. Predominantly, we focus on four key areas for geospatial projects, you know, the visualization, the processing, analyzing, and sharing. So for example, in terms of visualization, you know, lots of people have different types of geospatial data. We let you view all that geospatial data, you know, in one view. Point clouds, images, shape files, etc. Processing, uh, I'm not going to list them off, of course, but, you know, we've got over 80 processing functions. Uh, a couple of really cool things that people like about our uh, Swiss Army knife is, you know, you can share your projects with other stakeholders. Two ways you can do that. Locally, which includes a special viewer, you just email out the package. 
or you can share you know, over a cloud using our cloud application. The really cool thing, the one thing that we're really excited about is the analyzing your data. We're just about to launch uh, you know, our new deep learning-based tools, and we're pretty excited about that. So what you would use something like that for would be to identify objects in your imagery, you classify your point cloud. Um, the really cool thing is you, know, you use your own computer to train your own model using your own data. You keep everything local. This is a big change from what we see out there. Uh, in terms of other tools that are deep learning based, it's not our model, it's yours. And more importantly, you don't need to know the de details of deep learning. Uh, we've taken care of all those details. We just put that all that technology behind a really simple interface for you to use. So we're, we're pretty excited about that. That sounds really great. Let's stop a quick second here and go back and make sure we're all on the same page with some key buzzwords in the industry like cloud computing. Right? Do we have a what's the solved definition of cloud computing these days? Yeah. So uh, I'll I'll start out, and maybe Kevin can add some color. So so cloud is that you're right. It's sort of that nebulous thing. So for us, cloud is something that's not you know on your desktop. It's something that's out on the network. So a good example of that might be um, in the case of our Compass application that actually runs in an AWS account. So it's out in Amazon's cloud service out there. Um, Kevin, you got anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, just uh, basically users use their data locally. They collected it off their sensor. They have the data on their hard drive, and then they, they simply upload it to someplace on the internet. Uh, they don't have to be concerned on where that data lives. As Scott points out, it may live in Amazon or Microsoft Azure or something like that, but that data lives up on the internet somewhere and is accessible by all users around the world. So you could also say it's kind of like outsourcing your IT server room uh, from back in the day when you had to have a big uh, data storage center and as part of your company's building. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Yeah, that's one example. All right, good. Just want to make sure I wasn't uh, missing the cloud, so to say. Then you mentioned, uh, Scott, deep learning. Is that similar to AI and AIML? I think is one of the big buzzwords in the industry these days. Yeah, there's a couple of keywords there. Uh, AI, ML, deep learning. Kevin's probably the best one to give a, give an answer to that. Yeah, so AI or artificial intelligence is essentially the uh, ability to make a machine mimic human-like behaviors. So uh, you mentioned, yeah, it's a definitely a buzzword. Uh, it encompasses many different industries or areas of focus. Uh, you know, we've seen customer support agent bots answering questions on websites. We've seen... AI playing video games or, you know, even computer vision technologies and self-driving cars where they're, you know, recognizing a person crossing the road and telling your car to stop driving. So uh, it sounds like a crazy advanced topic, but it's, it's not always that complex, you know, rather there's uh, in its basic form, it's essentially a series of if else statements that the computer is going, if this is happening, I'm going to do this uh, to handle that situation. So we're using artificial intelligence in, in some more advanced ways within Solved here. Um, but uh, we do have some, you know, traditional functions that you may have seen in our toolkit where, you know, we're just manipulating a bunch of points in LiDAR data to classify them automatically. In a sense, this is a, a form of AI. Um, and then, yeah, moving on to the kind of machine learning world or the terminology, Machine learning is actually a subset of that AI. And 
it's a process that essentially allows the machine to learn from past data sets. You know, for example, maybe you're trying to teach a computer how to identify a particular berry growing on a bush or something, whether it's poisonous or not. Uh, for a computer to, to learn from this, you need to give it examples of that of those scenarios or patterns and and the outcome of those scenarios. So to get into a little more detail, I'm not really an expert on horticulture of poisonous berries, but uh, say for if you see a red berry and it's and it's a tiny red berry, maybe that's a poisonous berry. Uh, maybe if it's if you see a blueberry and it's shaped like a blackberry, it's not poisonous. Uh, if it's red and shaped like a strawberry, it's not poisonous. If it's purple and has thorns on its vine, maybe it's poisonous. So these are the types of examples of or past data sets that you might want to use to to uh, teach a computer what a poisonous berry looks like. And the, the same principle can be applied within our toolkit and the geospatial data data sets that we collect today. So, uh, you know, if you provide examples of LIDAR with classifications for what a tree might look like, what a building might look like, noise or things like that, the machine can start to learn from that and create what we've called a model for, for deep learning. Right. So what you're talking about from a geospatial status would be sort of training it to recognize a stop sign has eight sides to it. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good example. Right. And how that would be distinguished from a yield sign being a triangle in some areas, but it could look differently in other countries. Although I think it's always a triangle, come to think of it. So yeah, so it's the, it's the whole overall process of training a computer to deal with what it might look like at different angles and different orientations, so that way it can recognize it as quickly as you or I might be able to recognize it because of our long-term experience in point cloud data. That's, that's right. And to get a little more technical on that, and Scott's already kind of mentioned it, but that, that uh, learning process, uh, we actually uh, use an even smaller subset of machine learning called deep learning. And that's where that terminology comes in. It, that's more similar to how, as you alluded to, uh, Josh, uh, that's more similar to how the human brain works in terms of how we recognize objects and how we can quickly identify what they are. And our solution around that deep learning process uh, is we've, we've basically created a very easy to use toolkit. You don't need a degree in computer science or machine learning to use the toolkit. It's just easy to use for, for both point cloud and imagery object identification to help train or teach the computer to get the solution that you desire. The, the idea there, Josh, is, you know, uh, without knowing the details of deep learning technology, is you just present to the computer examples, uh, many examples of what it is you're looking for. So like you mentioned stop signs and yield signs. You can actually create two classes, stop signs, yield signs, and then show the computer, you know, uh, examples of stop signs and then examples of yield signs. And it's a lot like teaching your, your kids how to add. You know, when I taught my kids how to add, I would say two plus two equals four, three plus one equals four, uh, four plus zero equals four. So you just give them good examples. And where the rub comes in is you don't want to confuse it by, by saying, you know, four plus one equals four, you know, so you got to be you got to manage your data appropriately and give good examples to the computer for it to learn. So that sample size, I think, is an important uh, area to explore a bit more. Is So do I need to collect a thousand miles of road that have maybe 10,000 stop signs in it before it figures it out? Or is it a smaller uh, size necessary or needed? Uh, well, it's a very subjective answer. Uh, 
However, it does depend on the object that you're looking at. Uh, for what we've seen for in past experience, say you do collect, you know, 100 miles of interstate and you're looking for stop signs, you may only need to provide examples for training for, you know, the first maybe 20 or 40 stop signs. And from that, you can usually apply that to the rest of your data set to find all the other stop signs. If you are, however, if you're going to use that same model that you've created on a future data sets that maybe is on a, in a different place in the world uh, where stop signs look slightly different or maybe a different language on them, you may need to teach the computer a bit more examples on how to recognize those types of stop signs. So it's all subjective, but uh, yeah, definitely there's a, a path forward for analyzing stop signs in your data sets. Sure. So I'm imagining that if I had your software and I downloaded it on my laptop, I would need to have a not just a fun, lightweight laptop, but something pretty powerful. And then I'd also need a lot of space to have the sort of deep learning machine housed on my computer. Is, is that how it works or, or am I missing the mark on that? Uh, that's partially how it works. So you don't need anything super powerful, but you, yeah, I would definitely give it some more resources if you have something available. At the very least, for, for our software, Solved Engine, you would need a, a Windows computer, probably less than two to three years old, and something with a decent dedicated graphics card in it. Uh, I recommend something around an NVIDIA 2000 or 3000 series graphics card. However, that being said, our algorithms are designed to be flexible and will adapt to the, the resources that you give it. You can run it on lesser resources on, your, on a tiny sales laptop, but it may take longer or produce slightly less accurate results. But kind of moving back to that cloud methodology that we talked about at the beginning here, you can also rent a VM from the cloud. It's really easy to get access to these these days. You pay at an hourly rate for access to these VMs and you can run Solve Engine in the cloud. Uh, and I would recommend using that for possibly for cloud training or for your data training. And then uh, maybe when you run and collect a future data set, you can just run the classification on your on your laptop or a, a lower spec machine. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks, Kevin. How about when you consider the fact that with a lot of mobile scanning systems on the marketplace, there's not just LiDAR point cloud data, there's also imagery data. Is it able to take advantage of both or does it favor photos over LiDAR data? How does that play into the, the development of the algorithm? Yeah, so right now we have kind of two different frameworks for handling those different data types. So we have a, a point cloud kind of deep learning framework that analyzes point cloud and classifies those point clouds automatically. And secondly, we have one that's more focused towards imagery. So at the current time, they are very much uh, separate. Uh, they, and it really depends on your use case. If you're trying to say you're trying to do stop signs and panoramic imagery, you would use that toolkit. But if you're trying to identify trees in a point cloud, you'd use the point cloud toolkit. So they're both, as we alluded to before, they're both really easy to use and you just got to give it examples in both of those sets. But right now they're kind of a, a separate train of thought there on how to process that data. Not to give away too much about our product roadmap, but one of the things we are looking at is, you know, how do we combine, uh, we either combine the deep learning frameworks for the point cloud and the imagery and see what kind of results we get, or we combine the output of the models and see what kind of results we get. So we're doing research on that right now and early days yet, but it looks quite uh, quite interesting. 
Yeah, I know that's always the big challenge. If you talk to other, you know, feature extraction software providers, uh, they always make comment that, you know, for a human to do it, using a photo overlay over the point cloud improves the speed of it. But when you're accurately picking, let's say, something like curb and gutter lines, you want it to not use the photo, you want it to use the, the point cloud data back engine because that's more of an accurate uh, location of it. So I was just interested to see how it sort of the blending is there yet, or if it's it's do it one way and then check the results against the other way kind of situation. Yeah, and just to add to that, we do have ways of, you know, if you've identified maybe a land use classification of a farmer's field or a water body in some, say, some ortho mosaic imagery, you can apply that that knowledge that it's learned back into the point cloud and automatically classify the points as as water or as vegetation or whatever it might be. Uh, so the, there is already some amalgamation of that data set, but uh, there's still lots of work to do and lots of research to, to be done. Sure. There's also a lot when you talk about AI, there's, you know, the, the ethical concerns and the, the questions around, um, you know, how, how smart is this and how quickly is it learning? This is really just a geospatial uh, technology application for your AI development. It's not at any danger of moving into a different branch of uh, work. Like it's not going to talk back to you and uh, and let you know that it's really tired of picking all the stop signs of this data set. Please stop asking it. Please, please stop asking it. No, we're not at the stage of 2001, a space odyssey where, where Hal is now suddenly trying to kill you or, or even... Uh, you know, iRobot. Uh, sure. Yeah, that's that's not what we're working on. We're working on how do we make the whole geospatial data workflow uh, easier for folks. Right. And I think, uh, you know, all levity aside, I mean, the real reason these tools are necessary is, uh, I don't know how it is in the Calgary area, but I hear constantly in the North America, the U.S. market particularly, that, um, you know, there's not enough data processors to go around these days. So this is a real force multiplier once it gets up and running. Is that a good way to look at it? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, if, if we look at the, the data output from one of your, your mobile scanners, I mean, there's just tons of data coming out of that. And then, like you were saying earlier, if you've scanned thousands of kilometers of roadway, that's a lot of data. And how do you process that, right? Like, it, it began, we're already seeing, you know, post-pandemic shortages of uh, workers in different sectors. So how do you actually process, you know, this tons of data? And this is one tool, one toolkit that really helps you with that. Thanks, Scott. Uh, that is true. Uh, with these now powerful mobile scanners, I mean, they, they collect so much information so quickly that the task is no longer dependent on how much data you can collect. It's what you can do with it afterwards. So it is really important that we have the right tools in place to help folks downstream because it doesn't do anyone any good if you have thousands and thousands of miles of data collected, but no one to extract it. So I guess the follow-up to that is, what really is the do you guys feel is the most powerful feature or the most often used feature of your software at this time? Scott, you want to take a stab at that? I, I would say, you know, most of our requests are still around, you know, visualization and sharing quickly, followed by analytics. Um, and I think, you know, what we were just talking about there, uh, Josh, is, is what's driving it. It's like people have so much data. They now need the analytics piece, the, the processing analytics piece to extract value out of that data. It's uh, very interesting to see uh, how this uh, launch of the new uh, toolkit uh, goes. To add to that, um, 
We do have a lot of requests on privacy blurring. Uh, it's by far one of our most used functions, uh, to, you know, being able to identify vehicles or people within imagery and just blur them out so they're hidden from from wherever, whoever might be looking at them. Sure. And then to kind of add to that, uh, you know, our, our we always have done a lot of traditional kind of object classification, identifying ground and not ground or removing noise from point clouds. So that's also a very, very popular feature within our software. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, so far to date, I don't know of any state DOTs in the United States that are requiring image blurring services, but I know in Europe, they're much more sensitive to that. And uh, it's probably more of a sensitivity issue in Canada as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely an upcoming movement, as we've seen uh, throughout the, uh, the legal system as it works with trying to catch up to the amazing uh, advances we have in technology these days. That's good that you have that. Uh, I guess on information sharing, uh, that is a good point to uh, circle back on is that, you know, one of the main advantages that Solved offers is a really great viewer to enable you to share between you and your end clients for all of our mobile users out there. Do you guys want to talk a little bit more about the, uh, the data sharing process and the tools that are available? Yeah, as, as I said earlier, we kind of have two methods uh, for sharing depending on the need. So if it's a very simple need, you just want to quickly share a project uh, you know, with a client just to show them the status, you can share straight out of our engine application. And, and so you go in, use the viewer to load in all the data that you want to share, you know, set your view, set your angle, uh, just right, and then click export. And that export then creates a package of the data and a viewer. So the person you're sending it to, let's say you're sending it to a client for approval, of a project, they don't need engine. You just send it to them by email, you know, they download the data, the viewer, they have a look at it uh, and it's good to go. So very simple way of sharing. But if you've got a more complicated need, let's say, you know, you're, you're uh, working on a uh, repaving of a interstate, you know, you're doing hundred miles of interstate repaving, you've got engineers, you've got foremen, you've got a whole bunch of people that need to go into the project every day or every couple of days that's when you'd use a cloud application like our Encompass. And that way, you know, your data uh, is concurrent for everybody and it's synchronous. So what I mean by that is 100 people can go in at the same time and view the latest data. So depending on your needs, you know, if you've got simple needs, you just use an application like Engine, which would be what we call a local first. Or if you've got really complicated uh, needs, you use a cloud app like Encompass. Okay, that's a good way to uh, segue into the, the sharing part. Of course, there's lots of great tools out there for data sharing, but that's definitely one of the most challenging, I think, aspects when it comes to now that you have all this great data, how do you get someone into it so they understand really the full extent of its value? Uh, that's always been a challenge, I think, in mobile mapping is if you can't share it with other people or demonstrate that you have it uh, in the first place, it becomes a big uh, bottleneck where you can't. Uh, make that single data set into a multiple resold product. And I know that's slowly starting to pick up in the industry. So this is another great tool that's available that Solved has to help companies, you know, not just resell it outside the organization, but sometimes there's a lot of stovepiping where different groups inside large engineering and architectural firms aren't, uh, aren't sharing that information adequately across the space. Internally, too, we've got a number of clients who not only share 
their you know their projects and their data you know outside the organization with other stakeholders like their customers, but even internally, we talked about massive amounts of data. You've got you know 10, 20, 100, 200 projects. How do you share internally uh, with your own employees? You know what projects you have, what data that you have. So yeah, that's very true. We talked about it a little bit where he's talked about how you are starting to look towards blending the LIDAR and imagery parts together of the, uh, the deep learning process. What comes next for AI ML evolution do you see down the road in maybe five years? Is it going to be you know, a, a pre-made geospatial expert on your computer or is it uh, a lot more deep learning or just a quicker process to start the data set post-process? I think, I think it's more of the latter. Uh, personally, I feel that the industry is moving towards more of a more of an automated extraction process, so or feature extraction process. I know even five or ten, actually even probably 15, 20 years ago, we were always talking about, uh, you know, it'd be it would be a dream that if I could automatically extract all of my features out of this data that I've collected of this little tiny road that in my city, if I could automatically extract the position of the stop signs and the curb edges and all those things automatically, you know, we'd have a bazillion dollars in our bank account. So I think we're we're now finally closing in on getting close to that reality, you know, being able to extract that data automatically. So going forward, I'm, I'm hoping to see in the next five years, as it, almost instantly after you've collected that data right off your sensor, maybe while you're driving back to the office, uh, data is being uploaded into the cloud, Things are automatically being extracted. They're putting, they're being put in a digital twin platform or something online uh, for visualization to be shared with people. Whether you want it or not, you're, you're going to have all the stop signs and all the curb edges and all the buildings and everything are automatically extracted and, and visible for the, every stakeholder of that project. Well, that certainly sounds like an interesting future, but it brings to mind, do you think we really have a good understanding of all the different ways we could benefit from having that kind of data at this point? Or do you think there needs to be more of an evolution in thinking from the folks downstream of how they would use this instantly updated digital twin model? I think there is definitely some thought that needs to go in there. Uh, You bring up a good point of there's lots of artifacts and lots of different objects being created for people, but uh, you know, you can even we see it now with the point clouds that we collect, there's, you know, thousands or millions of data points, you're going to have millions of artifacts and millions of objects and, mi- and millions of other data sets being automatically produced. And uh, yeah, that can be overwhelming. So I know there's lots of bigger companies out there trying to recreate the world in in what they call the metaverse. And hopefully, those types of uh, users that are using software like that or, or systems like that might be able to help fine tune or, or shape the process of of those data sets and how they're used in the future. But yeah, I mean, it's really early to tell at this point in time, but I'm really excited about it. I think to maybe add a little bit more to that, Josh, um, I, I think everybody in the whole value chain needs to, to get together and, and look at the problems that need to be solved. Uh, and this is not unique to geospatial. I mean, if I use the example of, of cell phones, you know, when cell phones first came out, they were big, they were bulky, they were expensive, and, and really the only people who used them were lawyers and real estate agents, right? And, and now, you know, everybody's using uh, Google Maps or some sort of uh, GPS uh, to 
to not only find out where they are, but, you know, hey, listen, you know, we're hungry. What's a good restaurant that's nearby? Right. And so, you know, technology evolves based on the needs. But, you know, we've, we in the geospatial industry, we just need to be you know, listening to each other to find out where those problems, where those pain points are. And then we can apply the appropriate technology to solve them. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. There's there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done as we move forward with this. And I, I think even uh, another factor to bring bring back in the loop here is how do you check the quality of it? I mean, of course, the computer is going to say my model is ninety nine percent accurate, but is it really? Is that the accuracy that we want? Do we? How are we get? How do we get it to a hundred percent? And how do we know that it's really there? Because I know a lot of these uh, AI ML settings are basically on a predictive model on how well it operates and not necessarily on a, uh, how do you say, uh, you know, reality-based. You know, it's not the same as a person coming through the data where they know they got them all. It's a, well, it should be this many. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a really great point, Josh. In our tool, we've got uh, a couple of things that help you evaluate the output uh, without getting into the the nitty-gritty details. Um, you can check the scores uh, and then go in and actually look at uh, the results that the models are producing. And then you can decide if the model is actually performing the way you need it. Not perhaps on like, you know, with a, with a, a person, you know, you train them up, you tell them, this is what I need you to do. Uh, you know, the first couple of jobs that they do, you check them. And if it's within your accepted standard, you go, okay, you know, well, we'll let you go ahead now and maybe spot check your work. So you can do the same thing with the results of models from deep learning. And then, you know, as, as things progress, you may, you know, want to go back then and maybe up to Kevin gave the example of, you know, you're recognizing stop signs or fire hydrants in North America and you want to do a job in Europe. You may then have to go in and test that model, see that the results are not great, and then go back and update and train the model uh, in the direction that you need it to go. Yeah, and to add to that, a little bit more on that that score or accuracy, like you had mentioned, Josh, like ninety, getting from ninety nine percent up to a hundred percent, that's a that's a real challenge. At at this point in time, we can see models depending on the number of training, we can see models into the ninety five percentile, uh, so fairly fairly good. But to get it to that hundred percent, at least at this point, there's still a little bit of human interaction to. As Scott alluded to, there's you gotta you gotta test that model on different data sets. You may need to delete an object or manually add an object after the fact just to to get it to the that 100% threshold. But uh, I mean, you're still saving quite a bit of time and money already getting the computer to do all of this detection for you. So uh, we're we're only talking about a few hours or something of of human interaction at that point instead of weeks or or uh or days or weeks to to get the same result if you had to do it manually you know compared to maybe sending your data over to an offshore facility or company to do that kind of classification uh you know you can save a lot of time running it through a toolkit like this that's a good point kevin there's a lot of different ways to sort of tackle the issue and i think one of the things that definitely hope that uh people take away from this conversation today is that you know, when, when using these technologies and all the different options available, offshoring, doing it yourself, all those, there's got to be appropriate level of pricing put in there and an understanding of what that final accuracy is going to look like and a, a good relationship and conversation with the, the client that's buying the extracted features from you. So that way there's 
you know, a good give and take because if you have a data set with 100 objects that you need to detect and you're at 99%, it's just one that you need to find, of course. Uh, but as that number grows larger, those numbers of objects you need to find get obviously incrementally larger. So you could, you know, it could be in a scenario where at 95%, it's a really good percentage, but that's 5,000 to, you know, it turns into a big missing number of objects, perhaps. Uh, and to find all those in a giant data set could take an enormous amount of time. So I think it's really critical not to throw the, you know, the good technology advantage that this provides just because of the fear that you'd have to search the data for 5 million targets that weren't found out of, you know, 100 million. That's right. Yeah. And that threshold or, or that kind of manual intervention, like it's still early days. And I think as these models are developed and fine-tuned, uh, you can start to eliminate some of those data sets. And our toolkits allow you to make tweaks to that data after you've ran, so you ran the results and you, you know, you found 95 out of 100 stop signs, you can still go in and manually fix those or tweak those uh, and then produce an, another model uh, that's learned from those, those mishaps and, uh, or those false positives and, uh, you know, created an even better model for going forward into the future. So, yeah, like I said, we're still early days, and uh, I'm really excited to see what kind of models people create from these data sets. Same here. I think that's a, it's a big step forward. It, it comes at a right time where workforces and technology are sort of matching the need for this to really work correctly. And so I really am hopeful and optimistic that our partners in the industry and customers really approach it with the right attention to detail on how everything is going to merge together in an appropriate way so that we, we don't end up with you know, some bad feedback in the marketplace right away that turns people off from a really useful and needed technology innovation. What's a good way for folks that want to learn more about deep learning and especially about Solved to get more information out there? We actually, uh, when we were building this tool, we created uh, a workshop to go along with it. So we cover off the basics of, of deep learning. You know, what is deep learning about? What are some of the, the tips and tricks that you need to take into account when you're looking at setting up uh, a deep learning technology and uh, a deep learning process to start training models, to start using models? So we've set up a workshop to do all that. And it's a hands-on workshop. So we take you through all the tips and tricks. We give you access to a toolkit, let you go hands-on with some sample data so that you get a better feel for, you know, what exactly it is we've talked, you know, we're talked about here today. We've talked about a lot of things. So it'll give you uh, a chance to really get a feel for a lot of the things that we've talked about. If anybody is interested uh, in that, just reach out to us at info at solve3d.com and we can hook you up uh, with our next workshop. Well, perfect. That's a great way to uh, wrap up here. So make sure you check out their workshop for more information about deep learning and deep dive further into deep learning. Thank you both for joining me today on this episode of Regal's RyeCast, Road Trips with Josh and the VMX. Any parting words of wisdom? No, thanks a lot, Josh. We really appreciate it. And uh, good luck on your road trip. Yeah, thanks very much, Josh. Yeah, thank you. So we'll uh, have both Kevin and Scott back again if we hear any reports of people's VMX talking to them after they run Solve3D's deep learning algorithms. Until then, take care. Bye. 
Thank you, Josh and Solved, for taking us on a journey down the information superhighway. We look forward to future updates within this exciting field. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our RyeCast anywhere you listen to podcasts. And the series is produced at our North American headquarters located in Central Florida. You can also subscribe to our Regal Ultimate LiDAR webinar series and our international newsroom on www.regal.com. You, the Regal users, give us the best stories to tell. We always appreciate your suggestions, so please send us your ideas or comments to communications at regalusa.com. As always, have an ultimate LiDAR day. Until next time. Abby, signing off.